Good morning, everyone. My name is Dave. I am one of, the, one of your pastors here at Cross Point Church. It's great to be with you all on this very special Sunday morning. Uh, as most of you reminded me this morning during the greeting time, it's Father's Day today, which I already knew. My kids were eager to say Happy Father's Day to me this morning, and I'd just like to extend a joyful Father's Day to everyone here who has the privilege of being a dad. And um, I hope you have a great day with your families. And I also realized that, um, I was also reminded this morning that Father's Day is a really tough day. Uh, Just like Mother's Day is for a lot of women, Father's Day can be a tough day for a lot of people because of who their fathers were or are. And so many of us have grown up with a father that uh, did not, you know, sort of fulfill what our dreams of a father were. And um, some of you have lost fathers at an untimely season of life and um, are struggling with that right now. And so my deepest sympathies go out to you as well. And I think that Father's Day should be a time for disciples of Jesus, if anything, that we should just remember and reflect on who God is. I mean, one of the major themes of the Bible, if not the major theme of the Bible, is that God, the creator of the universe, the omnipotent, sovereign Lord, who's existed from eternity past, you know, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, that we can relate to him as a father. I mean, that is the good news of the gospel, that because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, that we now can relate to God as a father. And he is our good father. He is our good father who gives us gifts that we don't deserve. He's our good father who never abandons us and never leaves us and never forsakes us. And so Father's Day should really be about him more than it is about, about us dads today. This morning, as uh, Stan mentioned, we're going to be looking at uh, a really a, an, an awesome psalm this morning. Psalm, psalm 16. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there right now and follow along. We're, we're going to read it in just a few minutes. Last Sunday night, those of you who don't know, probably most of you know by now, there were over 300 people that gathered at an Orlando nightclub just having a good time. None of them probably thought they were taking a huge risk by being there. But very early Monday morning, at around 1 or 2 a.m., a shooter gunned down 49 people in that nightclub. About another 50 were injured and hospitalized. It was a tragedy. And we are all reminded by events like that that life is fragile and that not a single one of us knows for certain that we will make it through today. Isn't that true? Just this past Friday marked the one-year anniversary of the day that nine worshipers in a small Charleston church were murdered during a Bible study. I remember a few years ago, I was at the zoo. I was, our family was going to the zoo. My parents were visiting us in town from Omaha. And we, went, we had to park a few blocks away from the zoo. We didn't have to, but we're too cheap to pay for parking. So we parked a few blocks away from the zoo. I think it was on Wisconsin Avenue by the hospital. And I remember my daughter Avery wanted to drive with my mom and dad that, that day. And so she drove with my parents and they parked their car on the side of Wisconsin Avenue. And we had parked on the on the opposite side of the street, and so they were going to have to have to cross the street, and my mom, I vividly remember this, because it's, it just left an imprint on me. 
My mom opened the, the door to let Avery out of the car. I think she was about two or three at the time. And before my mom could, you know, my mom would just let, let her out of the door. And she was kind of getting things situated in the car. And Avery ran around the back of the car. And she, she started walking between two cars and towards Wisconsin Avenue. And I just happened to glance up from across the street. And I saw this giant dump truck just hauling down Wisconsin Avenue at like 40 miles an hour. And I saw Avery walking directly into the path of this dump truck. And so I yelled out with everything in my being, Avery, stop! And she looked at me, and she was that age where it's like 50-50. She might stop, or she might run into the street. (laughs) And thank the Lord, she stopped, and she stopped, and about one second later, that dump truck just, I mean, she looked up, she had no idea it was coming. Had she not stopped, her life would have ended right there, right there in front of me. And it, I remember that entire day, just praying throughout the day, just thinking, pondering throughout the day how fragile life is, how precious life is, and how, how desperately I need God to watch over myself and my family, my kids, because I have no control, no control whatsoever over my life or the life of my kids. I mean, I can do everything in my power to protect them, but ultimately life is a gift from God. It's, it's, not, it's not something that... We, ch- we decide how long it lasts. I mean, where can we go that's, that's ultimately safe? Is there anywhere? In he- the book of Hebrews, ver- uh, chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, the writer starts talking about Abraham and how Abraham, God had called Abraham to follow him and to leave his home, to leave his, his um, home, his nation, his, where his family was, and to go to a place. He didn't even know where it was. And so he left. He went into a foreign land. He began living in tents. He, Abraham was a wealthy man. He, he, he was established. He had status. He had influence. He left everything he knew behind, and he went to follow God in this foreign land. And the writer tells us why. In verse 10, he says, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is is God. In other words, Abraham knew that everything that he had, all of his wealth, all of his land, all of his property, everything that he, you know, that we would typically associate with home, he knew it had no foundations. It wouldn't last. It wasn't worth hanging on to. He knew that everything in this world is shaking and passing away. Listen to Moses in Psalm chapter 90. Moses said, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Everything that we love, everything that we, that's important to us in this world is going to slip away. You can't keep your family together. You can't. Your, your kids, once they move out and become adults, and they, they can do whatever they want to. You can't keep them together. Most people can't even keep their marriage together today. You can't keep your body together. You can try to, but you can't ultimately. You can't keep your friends together. People move, people leave, people will disappoint you or maybe abandon you. Sometimes life just happens and friendships change. Not to mention the fact that every one of us is dying. There are no foundations in this world. 
So why would you put your roots down into anything that's passing away? Why put your hope ultimately in any physical reality or any political ideology or any human philosophy or any personal relationship? There are no foundations. It's all passing away. None of it's permanent. So what are we supposed to do about that? Well, some people worry. They spend their lives worrying about what could happen or what might happen to us if we don't protect ourselves. They worry about many things. According to Jesus, though, worry can't possibly add anything good to your life. Nothing. It's a total waste of an emotion. In Psalm 127, the psalmist says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. In other words, there are so many people who spend day and night, they work themselves to the bone, to exhaustion, in order to protect themselves and provide for themselves But ultimately, sleep and rest and protection comes from God. So most of those people who are spending their lives working, if they're doing it just to protect themselves, they're wasting their time. Because that protection can only come from God. Other people arm themselves. Many people are taking up arms today because of the world we live in. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, getting concealed carry permits, purchasing guns, and all of that will never guarantee your protection. It will not really help you get through life in this world with no foundations. It won't ever satisfy your deepest need, your deepest longing for protection and security. It can't. In Psalm 127, verse 1, the writer confirms this. He says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman who is armed... Stays awake in vain. That protection can only come from God. So what should we do? Living in a world that has no foundations today. Well, David, the writer of Psalm 16, shows us what to do. He prays. He prays. One of the most beautiful prayers found in Scripture. And I'd like you to read it with me in in Psalm chapter 16. We're going to go through it now together. Here's what he says. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names On my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our Father God, I pray this morning as we read your word and meditate on it and let it sink down deep into the depths of our hearts that you would become our deepest 
longing that you would become our most treasured possession, that you, that you would change our hearts and turn our affections to you, that we would feel safe in your presence, knowing you and your promises. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The big idea this morning, I think sort of summarizes this entire psalm, is this. God will bring you through life and death to complete and unending joy and pleasure if God is your all. I want to say that one more time. God will bring you through life and death to complete and unending joy and pleasure if God is your all. I want you to look at the things that God is, all the different things that God is to the writer of this psalm, David. Think about this. God is his refuge. God is his highest good. What he's saying is there's no good beyond God. God is the highest good that there is. There's nothing more worthy of my praise or my affection. There's nothing in this world that can give me more pleasure or joy or satisfaction than God. He's my highest good. God is his chosen portion or wealth. That's what that refers to. God is his wealth. God is his cup. God is his keeper. God is his inheritance. God is his counselor and teacher. God is his joy, his life, his endless pleasure. God is his everything. And because of that, David has confidence no matter what is going on around him. Now think about David and who he was. He is a person who, in this time in his life, feels, feels the need to ask God for protection and to watch over his life. Have you ever asked God for protection in, in a prayer? I'll bet every single one of you has, but even, even the children here have probably prayed to God and asked God to protect them or, or prayed to God when they're afraid. And that's a very good thing to do. It's good to ask God to preserve us, to protect us, to protect our children and our spouse when we're worried or anxious? Have you ever been overwhelmed with fear or anxiety or just felt vulnerable and simply cried out to God for help? That's how this prayer begins. It's a cry for help. He's saying, keep me safe. God, keep me safe for for you are my refuge. I'm looking for safety in you. Now, refuge means shelter or protection from danger. A refuge can be a place of protection, or just a place of safety, or a place of shelter, or covering, it's where we get our term refugee. That's obvious, right? A a refugee, of course, is a person who flees or escapes a dangerous environment, especially to a foreign land, or a foreign country, a place they don't know. We were singing this morning in our worship about orphans. Think about orphans. Orphans are a kind of refugee. Orphans are children who are uh, literally taken from their home, the place that is home to them. They're taken out of their home and they're now forced to live as refugees in a strange place, a foreign place. They're living with this. They've been uprooted from everything everything they know as home, which most of the time is probably a good thing because their home is a violent environment. That's exactly what a refugee does. They escape their homeland because of violence or danger. And that's, that's what children, they're, they're taken from their homes for that very reason, and they become like refugees. David was a refugee. He was driven from his home because of violence against him. He had enemies who were trying to end his life, so he had to run and hide. 
He knew the refugee life, and he's crying out to God as a refugee for shelter and protection. He said, he's saying, God, preserve me. But David could have turned down another path. He could have turned down another path. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we started this series with Psalm chapter 1, which is a psalm about two different paths. Ultimately, that psalm tells us, as an introduction to all the psalms, it's saying there are basically two ways you can go in life. You can go towards God, You can move towards God as your ultimate hope, your ultimate refuge, or you can move away from God. And you can look for hope, you can look for comfort, you can look for safety, you can look for pleasure, you can look for joy, and you can look for security in things besides God. Those are your two options. And this psalm agrees that there are two kinds of people, two paths you can take in life. The saints in the land choose God. God is their path in life. They seek God's presence. They want to be with God more than they want anything else. God is their highest good. He's their treasured possession. He's their chosen portion. He's their cup. He's their refuge. They're on the path that leads to gladness, rejoicing, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. That's their path. They've chosen that path. And on the other hand, there are those who run after other gods. They have sorrows And uh, those sorrows are only going to multiply. They have regrets. They seek pleasure and happiness in other gods. They long for something more than God. They put other people or things ahead of God. And the reason those people have multiplying sorrows is that everything they run after just disappoints them in the end. It doesn't give them the pleasure that they seek, the happiness that they seek. This psalm, again, assumes that we're all seeking happiness. And there's nothing wrong with that. We just have to make sure that we're looking for happiness in God. It's so simple, isn't it? It's so simple, and yet, it's so hard. (laughs) It's so hard. Why is it so hard? Well, think of, here's, here's the context David's writing in. This is around the time where the ancient Israelites had conquered the land of Canaan and they've been given an, an inheritance. The, the, the land was being distributed to the Israelite families. And David mentions that in the passage. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. In other words, God has given me a portion of land, and that gives me pleasure, and I'm happy with it. I'm satisfied with whatever God has given me. I haven't necessarily earned it, but I'm happy with it. That's what David is saying. And at this time, it was believed by the common culture that the gods of the Canaanites were at work to bless and multiply the crops and herds of of the inhabitants of their land, this land that was flowing with milk and honey. So if you prayed to those gods, for fertility and for prosperity. And if you sacrificed to those gods, they would hear you and take care of you. And many of the Israelites, once they possessed the land of Canaan, they began practicing idolatry and began praying to those gods because they didn't want to wait for God to answer their prayers. And so they started running after these other gods because those gods seemed to work well for the Canaanites when they lived here. So I'm just going to go after those gods so that we can enjoy the land the way the Canaanites did. Of course, that didn't last, did it? They wanted protection, they wanted to be fertile, they wanted to be prosperous, and so they sacrificed to these other gods rather than trusting in the one true God and waiting for him. And there were gods for about just about everything. In, in ancient 
uh, pagan culture in Canaanite in the Canaanite land, there were gods for everything. There was a god of fertility. There was a god of crops. There was a god of storms. A god of craftsmanship and skills. A god of love. A god of dance. A god of athletics. A god of healing. A god of wealth. And we could just go on and on. So why should we care about that? We're modern, sophisticated people. We don't pray to gods or sacrifice to gods anymore. We know that that was all a, a sham. Those ancient religious practices were a sham. It wasn't real. So why do we need to discuss this? And here's the reason. If you've been t- attending Crosspoint for any length of time, you, are, you probably already know this because we talk about idolatry a lot because it's all over the Bible. You see, we do be, become tempted to sacrifice to other gods, but our gods are different. Sort of. We run after things and we invest into things that we think can deliver us or give us security or protection or happiness rather than to trust in God alone for that. That's what we do. So I, I think of the God of athletics that comes to mind for me. The God of athletics. What would it mean to worship athletics today? What would it look like to sacrifice to that God? Well, you probably don't have to look very far. There are families who spend thousands of dollars and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours every year so that their child can have the opportunity to develop into a superior athlete, maybe earn a college scholarship someday or even play professional sports. I mean, tons and tons of families in my community do this. Most of, I mean, probably half the families with kids are doing this, assuming their kids are going to get, if they, if they make the right decisions, invest into the right programs, and they get the right coaching and play, you know, all of that, their, their kid will have the best shot to get a college scholarship someday or something along those lines. Now, there's nothing wrong with investing into your child's future as an athlete, but here is where a good desire becomes a consuming desire. When you as a parent have determined that if your child does not have the best opportunities to succeed, they won't be happy. That is idolatry. That's idolatry. Idolatry, what is idolatry? Idolatry comes from the heart and it causes us to seek or use something or someone to give us what only God can give us. That's idolatry. An idol can be anything which gives us worth apart from God. What about the God of wealth? Does the God of wealth still exist today? And do modern-day Americans sacrifice to the God of wealth? You better believe they do. Some of us do. How do we know that? Because there there are some Americans, and maybe even American Christians, who will absolutely exhaust themselves and, and sacrifice their family and other good things in their life, gifts from God, in order to, to achieve financial security. It's become a God to them. There, and there are plenty of people who are very generous with their time, with their energy, with their gifts, but they're not generous with their wealth. And that is completely out of order, my friends. Your wealth is your God if that's who you are. If you are not giving away lots of your money every year, you are a slave to your wealth. It's so abundantly clear in the scripture. That's just, that, if you're spending all of your income on you and your family, that tells us where your affections lie. That's how it works. And God, Stan said this so poignantly when he was up here. 
If God is our joy and our pleasure, we don't have to find a good reason to give our wealth away. Because God has given us every good thing to enjoy. Everything. We don't need it. If you can't think of a good enough reason to give a lot of your money away, you have a serious problem. It's called idolatry. An idol can be a successful career. It can be a healthy marriage. It can be a happy and successful children. It can be the approval of other people. It can be a college degree. It can be a new home, a new car. It can be a romantic relationship. It can be a fit and healthy body. It can be certain social or economic status. Whatever it is, once we have that thing, we can become terrified of losing it. And that's when we're in trouble, you know? Because when that career or that marriage or our children or that kind of body or that status is threatened, we are threatened. When that thing is shaken, we are shaken. That's idolatry. But this song tells us that if God is at our right hand, if God is at your right hand, if he is the one you're constantly seeking, you can never be shaken. That's the beauty of this psalm. You can't be shaken in a world that has no foundations. You will stand firm because God is at your right hand. Listen again to verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And then he tells us the conclusion. Therefore, therefore, because God's at my right hand, that's what he's saying, my heart is glad. I'm happy. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you, God, will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is a place of death, a place of dying and decay, a place of no return. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See the right hand, the the play on words there? If God is at our right hand... We will finish at God's right hand where there's pleasures forevermore if God is our all. Now this is, this psalm takes kind of a drastic turn at the end. I don't know if you caught it, but it's a very curious way for David to end the psalm. And the reason is because the Jews had a very underdeveloped view of the afterlife. They didn't know what we know now. Most Jews didn't even agree on what happens after you die. So they used this proper name, this proper name in Hebrew called Sheol. It's kind of a generic term for the afterlife or the netherworld, the place where people go down into the grave and they no longer experience anything good, anything human, away from God's presence and forgotten. Some Jews believed in a bodily resurrection, but most did not. And so the ancient Israelites focused a lot more on the present life than the afterlife, because they didn't know what, came, what happened after you die. But here, this is different. This is not an Israelite who's wondering about the afterlife. This is an Israelite who knows for certain what is going to happen to him after he dies. And I want to prove that to you. I mean, David, think about what he's saying here. It sounds like David believes that if he lives the right kind of life, if he lives with God, in his, if he lives with God at his right hand, if God is his, co- his refuge, his covering, his redeemer, his rock, he will be raised, David will be raised after death 
to experience God's presence forever in the most real, permanent, and physical way. Do you know why that's so strange? Because I want you to listen what David, to hear what David knew about his own death. In 2 Samuel, oh, I forgot where this is. Do I have it up there? Can I see it? 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. The prophet Nathan came to David later in his life, and he said this, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers in the grave, David knew he was going to die and be buried. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David knew a couple things from that prophecy. He knew it was a word from God and he believed it. He knew he was going to die and be buried and his body would decay in the ground. He knew that. And he also knew God would raise up a descendant after him whose throne would be established forever. Was it Solomon? No. It couldn't have been. Solomon's throne didn't last. So how could David write this way? How is it possible that David could write that God, he's he's asking God to preserve him from death, isn't he? He is. He's asking God to preserve him from death, but he's asking God to preserve him from permanent death. A death where he's permanently separated from God. So how could he write this way? In the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter stood up and gave the most compelling sermon in history. It had to be one of the most compelling sermons in history because immediately after this sermon, people were asking him, what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. And 3,000 people turned to faith in Christ and were baptized that day. Or if it took, maybe it took longer than a day to baptize 3,000 people, but it, it happened right then and there. And this, is, this, was the, this was the climax of the sermon. Beginning in verse 25, this is what Peter said. This is what led to all of that. He said, for David says concerning him, he's talking about Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Does that sound familiar? He's quoting Psalm 16. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. He's reciting this from memory. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And this is how Peter applies the psalm. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried And his tomb is still with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, David, being a prophet, knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Isn't that amazing? Remember a few weeks ago we talked about newness without decay? Newness without decay. This is Easter, guys. This is like Easter Sunday all over again. You know this psalm is right. You know what event this psalm is read at more than any other? Funerals. 
But this psalm is not about a funeral. This psalm is not about remembering someone who died. This psalm is about remembering someone who's alive. Today, Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer, this is exactly why theologians talk about David as being a type of Christ, a type of Messiah. In other words, David was a man that God called and led to write and live in such a way that when we look back on David's life and when we look back on David's words and prayers, we think about Jesus. So I want you to imagine Jesus praying this psalm and Jesus praying these words. God, preserve me, for in you I take refuge. Is it right for us to think of Jesus praying these words and Jesus praying to his Father for protection? Absolutely. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars' names is Bruce Waltke. He says this about the Psalms. He sums it up about how we should read the Psalms. He says, In all fairness, it seems as though the writers of the New Testament are not attempting to identify and limit the Psalms that prefigure Christ, which would be this one, a Psalm like this, but rather are assuming that all of the Psalms have Jesus Christ in view and that this should be the normative way of interpreting the Psalms. In other words, this is what he's saying. He's saying we should read all the Psalms back, be backwards from the New Testament. It is right for us to read the Psalms and think about Jesus. And imagine Jesus praying and singing these Psalms. I mean, think about the Gospels. How many times did Jesus sneak away by himself early in the morning or late at night or in the middle of the day out in a boat by himself so that he could have quiet time alone with his father. He did it every day. He did it all the time. Jesus was a human. He was exhausted at times. He was exhausted by people who were constantly clinging to him and following him and and asking him questions and crying out to him for mercy and begging him to heal them and begging him to intercede for their father or mother or brother or sister or child who was dying or whatever. Jesus was constantly on the move, constantly working, constantly exhausted, He went to his father daily for prayer and strength, crying out, God, preserve me, preserve my body, preserve my heart, preserve my mind, preserve my whole being, God. You are my refuge. Yes, Jesus prayed this way. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our faithful high priest because Jesus experienced everything we have, every range of human emotions. He was weak, he suffered. He was anxious and and sometimes he was just worn down and exhausted. He had to go to his father for strength and pray and cry out to him daily. He depended on God for everything. Jesus, think about this. Jesus himself was a refugee. He He chose the refugee life. Jesus once said that birds and animals have homes and shelter, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus chose to live as a refugee. He chose to die in exile. He suffered and died outside the gate of the city he loved. In Hebrews 13, we're told, So Jesus also suffered outside the gates of Jerusalem in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. Just like Abraham, we're seeking a city with foundations. 
Because of Jesus, we're to choose the refugee life. In other words, we're to leave behind the things that this world clings to. Things that have no foundation. And we are to cling instead to Jesus Christ. And the fact that he suffered and died in our place on the cross to make God our Father. And because he is alive, we will be raised to new life with a new kind of body. A body that is more than physical. I mean, think about matter. Think about matter, the stuff that the universe is made up of. Matter is going to cease to exist. Even, even secular physicists tell us now that matter is becoming more and more unstable all across the universe. It'll, the sun is eventually going to burn out. Human life as we know it will seek to exist. You know what's going to happen before that? Jesus. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. It won't be made of matter. It'll be made from the original stuff, the glory of God. It will never, it will never die. It will, we will live on in God's presence if he is our all for eternity. At his right hand, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Are you living for that today? Is Jesus Christ your foundation? Is he your vision? Jesus Christ raised exalted, seated at the right hand of God, waiting to vindicate his people, his church. That's the vision that gives us hope today. And that's the vision that gives us confidence and security in knowing God, no matter what is going on around us. I want to close this morning by sharing just a a brief story with you. I remember hearing, I don't remember who said it or who it was about. I just remember hearing about a pastor who was about my age, and his wife died of cancer, and he had young children, just like I do. And his wife died an untimely death, and he had a 10-year-old daughter who just couldn't, couldn't get past it. It just ruined her. And, and weeks and months went by, and she continually just couldn't get over the loss of her mother until one day, he was walking with his daughter, and she was walking out ahead of him. This reminds me of the story I shared with you of Avery actually earlier about the, car, the dump truck. And his daughter got ahead of him and they were about to cross the street and a, a big car, a car was coming down the road and he reached out and he grabbed his daughter and pulled her back out of the path of the car and the car just flew by her. He saved her life. And she just, you know, kind of woke up right then and there. And he seized an opportunity to teach his daughter about the gospel and this is what he said. He said to his daughter, are you okay? Yes, she said, yes, I'm okay. And then he said, did that car hit you? She said, no, daddy, the car didn't hit me. And he said, well, something, something hit you. Something passed by you. What was it? And she said, it was just a shadow of the car. And what he said to her was awesome. <laughs> he said, I want you to know something. Death didn't hit mommy. Just the shadow of death did. It was just a shadow. Mommy's alive. You are going to see her again. She's more alive than ever. We're going to be raised. We're going to be raised and taken into God's glory, into his presence. And the death that we know now is just a shadow. Death could not keep Jesus Christ in the grave, and it will not keep us in the grave. It's just a shadow. And that's why we can have hope and security in this world today.
because of who Jesus is and what he did. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything we know about this life. It changes everything we know about the future. It changes where we put our hope. It changes where we invest our resources and our time and our money. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we live. It changes our relationships. Because of Jesus Christ, because he died and was raised again and his body did not see corruption. And because he is seated at your right hand, Father, we know that you will vindicate us. You are our covering today. When we are feeling guilty and ashamed and condemned, you, God, are our covering. The blood of Jesus covers us. It speaks a better word than the blood of the law. God, we pray that today you would help us to put our hope and put our affection in you and that you would be our all, that we would turn away from worthless things and stop chasing after things that can never deliver us and that we would look to you for our salvation. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.